Raw Retailer Podcast, where we talk retail, business, and all things related to the hot tip industry. I'm your host, Megan Kendrick, owner of Spa Retailer Magazine. Today on the Spa Retailer Podcast, I am so pleased to have Rick Gallagher, the CEO of the platform that includes Marquee Hot Tubs, Artesian Spas, and most recently, Nordic Hot Tubs. So welcome to the podcast, Rick. It's so nice to meet you. Thanks, Megan. It's a privilege to be here today. This is the first time that Rick and I have had the chance to meet and to speak. And so all of this interview is new to me, too. We're all about to discover everything there is to know about Rick together. (laughs) (laughs) So where are we talking to you from? Where's your home base? I'm actually, I'm in Oregon today, based out of Nevada, but I'm at Marquis today. Speaking to you from Marquis, where I understand tomorrow it's going to snow, but... Oh, uh, fun. Yeah. Hopefully you don't get stuck. Yeah. We'll try to avoid the planes, trains, and automobiles adventure. So I've been up to Independence, Oregon, to the Marquis factory a couple of times, actually. So yeah, that's that's a plant I'm very familiar with. Yeah, and we're, it's, a, it's a great place to build hot tubs. A couple of years ago, they expanded to a second building, and we're doing some additional work here in early 2023 to just improve building and the environment for our team members as we look to try and be the preferred employer here in the neighborhood. Independence is a small town, so you've got you've really got the chance to to do that, which is exciting. It is. There's a few other larger players in town, but we really do think that that we can be the preferred employer. It's who we want to be. It's our DNA. It's how I came to to enjoy the position that I sit at now. Is my or the private equity firm that purchased all three of these? They really aligned with me, and I was concerned early on. We all we've all heard the stories about private equity and what that can look like, and we had some really um, frank conversations in the beginning, assuring each other that that wasn't how how this private equity firm operated. And uh, and they don't, they really are, a, they, they see things in the long run and they recognize that the large institutional investors that are going to make a purchase at an exit down the road are going to recognize the value of how we treat our people and the kind of employer that we can be. And so it's a privilege to lead the platform. Yeah, that's that's kind of exciting to hear because you're right. You do hear those stories about private equity. But that I was going to ask you, have you worked with a private equity company before? What is your background? Sure. The quick answer to your question is no, I haven't. This is my first private equity gig. Spent some time in the business turnaround space, um, had some success there. Just prior to this, led a, a pontoon manufacturing company in the Midwest. It exited that. That was that, that was a similar model. We knew it was a buy-to-sell model, but it was with a family limited partnership and had really sworn off the idea that private equity probably wasn't what I was going to look for. The adage that I used is most private equity seems interested in wringing the last ounce of water out of a washcloth and then setting it on fire, right? And that just wasn't who I wanted to work with. And when I got connected to this opportunity, there was, these folks were were incredibly upfront about what the process looked like. And turned out there was 14 gates to go through and they could lay them out. They could tell me what they were going to be. And in the end, they were kind enough to offer me this role and started May 9th of this year. My family and I moved from a northwest suburb of Minneapolis, Minnesota, down to Las Vegas, Nevada, which was full of change. Landed in, in Las Vegas and just in time for the summers. It was surprising in one hand, and yet it was an adventure. And my wife and kids have taken the move in stride, and and it it's just been an incredibly pleasant surprise. What a unique opportunity and a unique time to come into the industry 
where when there originally seemed like there was still infinite demand, right? You could just build hot tubs and people would buy them. How great is this? We, yeah, that we, was that was kind of how it was going for a while there. No, nobody thought that really existed outside of college, but it does. And then to see the change as the market corrected and to be able to exercise the muscles and to where there's been atrophy in, in all aspects of the business, certainly on the sales side and on the marketing side, as we've had to make moves there, but also on the production side where and on the purchasing side, on the production side, where it wasn't just about capacity anymore, we had to go back and use a word we hadn't used in a while, which was productivity, right? We It matters to us how many labor hours we put in building a tub. It isn't just about the next incremental tub. And also on the purchasing side, we needed to be shrewder because it wasn't just about buying all the parts you could buy and ultimately just throwing money at a problem because you know you could sell them off the backside of the plant. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been a tremendous opportunity for us to strengthen ourselves and ask a lot of questions that I think had there not been that reset, even with what happened prior to COVID, I think there was a lot of habits that we probably wouldn't have questioned. It was a great way to learn. And I think the just the the foundations that we've started to put in the organization, even before that that change in demand, I think helped our team to understand that problems are golden nuggets, right? Where we see challenges and we say, how can how can we fix this to make ourselves stronger? How can we do, fix this to, to grow our market share? How can we fix this to sell the next incremental hot tub? And the team's engaged. They're, they're, we just see so much progress. And as we, we put together some strategic workshops and pull different team members together across companies on the platform, and now with the addition in Nordic, brought them into some of the conversations. There's such an opportunity to share best practices and to across all the plants and to bring folks together. We had the luxury of bringing all the sales leaders together just last Thursday in Grand Rapids and spent a day together talking about what works, what doesn't, where it makes sense for us to cross sell and where it doesn't. And let, everybody left that meeting super pumped because they could mm -hmm. just see the opportunity and we've already seen results come out of it. So it's yeah. great stuff. Yeah, that is great. It's interesting that you come from the boating industry. A lot of times in the hot tub industry, we compare ourselves to boating and to RVs, you know, those luxury products that you know, you're serving a specific market. You ride the wave of the housing market maybe a little bit with those products. And so it's really interesting that you come from that side of it because I'm not sure we've actually had that kind of crossover before. <laughs> Yeah, I was surprised when I first accepted the role. I really didn't recognize how much similarity there was across the industries, but there really is. There, in the boating industry, certainly there's distribution through dealer networks that's similar. How products are priced is not significantly different in terms of the methods that are used. But even things like there, there's a there's cottage group of core vendors that serves the marine industry. Just there's oh, that cottage group of core vendors that serves the hot tub industry. And you get the, I was in the pontoon business, but you get the ancillary complementary or and similar, but yet different spaces like power boats and sailboats and whatnot. And you have the same thing, but you have hot yeah. tubs and you have pools and above ground pools and the like. And so there really is a lot of similarity as to how these businesses operate that I'm grateful for because it's afforded me a, an opportunity to ask fewer dumb questions here in the first seven or eight months. That's funny because it sounds like there's some more similarities than I think 
we inside the hot tip industry think. I think we mostly look at it from a comparison as far as marketing and a customer standpoint. So that's interesting that it's even a little bit deeper than that, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it is. I used to joke in my time in turnarounds, everybody thinks that their industry is unique until they learn about somebody else's industry. Oh but, my goodness. Uh, I say that all the time as well. <laughs> we all think our businesses are all these like we, super special unicorns and they're not. <laughs> exactly. There's so many things that are similar. And to the extent we can figure out what it is that makes us unique, it, really is what affords us the opportunity to capitalize. But you're right. There's really some amazing similarities. Scale, obviously, is one big difference, right? A large pontoon manufacturer makes a couple thousand boats a year. That's It takes much more than that to be a large manufacturer of hot tubs. But but other than scale, there's, there is a lot of similarities across the industries. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting that you have, you've taken that sort of out of the, I don't know, just out of our imaginations and, <laughs> and put some actual truth to it. But when did you join the platform, which we should say is yet to be named? I know that the plan is there for there to be a name for the whole thing, but we don't have one yet, right? We're super excited to to be able to announce it, but we're getting there. But I, was I joined... we'd have some breaking news. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'd love to give it to you, Megan, but I can't. May 9th was my first day. So we're, I guess we're coming up on seven, just over seven months. And again, it's been a wild ride. There's, I'm an impact junkie, right? I love to see impact through change and change management. And there's been no shortage of it over the last seven months in this yeah. industry. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think from a high level, you see what Monomoy is doing with Marquis and Artesian and now Nordic. And you're like, okay, that makes sense, right? Similar, but they have enough differences. They, they seem like they would align. Makes sense. However, in practice... <laughs> of operationally blending together these three very different companies that have very different cultures that have been competitors for many years and right. are also not near each other at all. That seems quite a bit to to get together. So on the one hand, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then on the other hand, it's like, man, that's got to be a lot of work. Yeah, it's certainly the Artesian and Marquee acquisitions both occurred before I joined the platform. So right. I, I can't speak as much to the forethought there, but I can say this. Really super excited about both of those companies and how, even though in in most cases, there's very little cross-selling that happens, I think it's approximately a dozen dealers that are both marquee and artesian dealers across our network. So very different product lines, very different markets. Really, the profile of the dealer that we're seeking to target is very different. And because of that, they're actually complementary, right? We don't have to worry about cannibalizing sales of one to another. We're not, we're not trying to blend the dealer networks together and, and carve out real estate for super dealers. We're also not looking to blend the product lines, right? As of right now, 100% of the products that are manufactured for Artesian dealers are manufactured in Las Vegas, Nevada, and 100% of the marquee products are manufactured in, in Independence, Oregon. But as we, as we added Nordic, it really broke that mold because Nordic is such a complementary product line for both of these dealers and vice versa. You look at, at Nordic and the benefit that they have of the stellar reputation and the value price. And in, in many cases, inside of our competitors, they've just been, they've been present there and they've been operating inside of some great dealers. Mm -hmm. And now we look at, at just some of the opportunity that we've had thus far already to cross-sell and bring Nordic inside of artesian dealers or marquee dealers. And we're just, we anticipated what we thought was a pretty conservative number it's already proven to be much more conservative than we should have been. The sky's the limit, and 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 even in these slower times, there's so many dealers that that I think are rethinking what they want their floors to look like 
under this new normal or however many nor- the newest normal. Yeah. <laughs> they're trying to they're trying to understand. Okay, in, in this environment where I have to be more competitive, what are the things that I can do to do so and to sell more hot tubs than the store down the street, down the road, or in the same community? And what I think we think what we've got our fingers on are some of the ease of business initiatives that we're pursuing, some of the things that we're seeking to build out as a part of what this platform will be and what it'll stand for and how we want to make sure that we're serving our dealers with, that we're serving them with excellence mm-hmm. and giving them the tools that that they can run their dealerships with best practices while still respecting and understanding that we've got 650 independent laboratories out there called dealers and they get to run their businesses how they want. And we never want to be that platform that says, I'm going to dictate how you run your business because somebody in Tulsa, Oklahoma knows far better how to run a hot tub dealership than I ever will. And so helping with tools, helping with process, helping with ways to evaluate their business and maybe KPIs to help them score themselves, but never going across that line and saying, you have to do it my way or the highway. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I think you probably spoke to some of the fears of existing marquee or artesian or Nordic dealers who see this little independent company where they could call up the CEO whenever they wanted to. And it was that handshake relationship. And now not only is it combined with someone they used to compete with, but also you bring in the private equity factor and everyone gets a little nervous about what does that look like? Are we losing that mom and pop sort of independent thing that we liked about this manufacturer, but it sounds like you're saying, sounds like your answer to that is no. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and you know, Megan, I, I appreciate you asking. I, here's what I'd say. We're, I'm a Midwestern guy and whether this is a stereotype or whether it's reality or both, I'll let folks decide that it's, I was born and raised that you got to walk the walk and then you can talk the talk. Right. And so we're right now really close to developing what we've decided is going to be the brand promise that we have for this platform. And with that, the value proposition for, for those who choose to be our dealers and as well as their customers. And as we do that, we've established what Some, but not all of those core foundations are, but one of them is just what you spoke to, right? Can I pick up the phone and can I talk to somebody? Or do I have to fill out a web form and have somebody call me back? The answer is our customer service teams have to be teams where we still respond. That's the reason why our dealers are our dealers and they've grown up that way. Are there some things that we can do better because we'll instill best practices across the platform inside of customer service? Absolutely. But one of them will not be that we're going to, we're going to bake customer care down or dealer services down to a point where we're not serving them. I'm old fashioned enough, and maybe this makes me a dinosaur, but my cell phone number is on the bottom of my signature line. People still get it. And yeah, I old. noticed that. I was like, oh, maybe make sure I put that, maybe make sure I write that one down. That's who we need to be. And that's how we need to serve people. I keep quoting this quote and I keep giving the credit to an author named John Maxwell. If it's not him, whoever it is, I stole it from him. Yeah, we'll I, definitely, I'll definitely fact check you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. But, uh, Businesses like tennis, those who serve win. And really, that's who we aim to be. We want to serve people with excellence. We want to serve dealers with excellence. We want to serve customers with excellence. We want to certainly serve our shareholders with excellence. But we want to serve our employees and our vendors with excellence too, mm-hmm. right? And if we do that, we'll, we will prosper beyond belief. There's tremendous opportunity in this industry. And there's some lessons that we've learned from 
some of the platforms that have come before us that we will want to parrot what they did. And there's some things that we can learn from and say, we might do that a little bit differently and how we handle these things. But but we have the benefit of both a rearview mirror we can look at as, as well as a windshield where we can choose what we want to do. And so just look at, at who we want to be going forward. And the last thing we want to do is shock those roots of that business that cares enough to know our dealers and know how to best serve them without losing that connection with them. One of the things I'm excited we'll be putting together is a dealer council. And nobody had time to, to nurture a dealer council for the last two years, but right. we really needed, we desperately need a dealer council because we never want to get out in front of our skis and pretend that we can be so arrogant that we don't need to, to be getting the voice of our customers. Yeah. So what has the last six, seven months of your introduction to the hot tub industry looked like? You talked about there being a lot of change, even in that less than a year, but what does that look like for you trying to not only, you know, lead new companies um, for you, but also, you know, an industry that you're not familiar with? Yeah, it's been a lot of learning and so grateful for the team that I have. We've got great people who, when I first parrot this story over and over again to my to my team here, I joked that I knew nothing about Marine when I started leading the boat company. And for those that don't know, a bimini is the piece that goes over the top of your pontoon boat. It's like the yeah. sunshade. Didn't know and, that. <laughs> uh, and, and so I used to joke with my pontoon team when I was there that I'm allowed to ask what a bimini is for the first six months. But after that, you're just gonna, all going to get really scared if I don't know what a Bimini is. But I've asked a lot of questions, right? And I've learned a ton from the team that's here. There's a wealth of knowledge and experience, first at Artesian and Marquis and now at the Nordic team, that is, it's been incredibly valuable to come up to speed. But we've seen these changes, right? And it's interesting how backlogs have been measured and managed across the industry. And we have some manufacturers who are on one side of the spectrum who just said, just place all the orders that you want and we'll put them in, we'll stack them and rack them and build them as fast as we can. And then you've got others that that capped the capped orders based upon allotments. And I don't know that there was any magic sauce to how it was done. And right. I think, ironically, I think that the slowdown happened quickly enough that it really didn't matter. It might've mattered if it happened a little slower, but because it happened so quickly, I don't think there was a right solution there, but it Artesian and Marquis handled those very differently. And I was just going to say, thinking about the companies that you guys own, I think even in your own house, they did that differently. <laughs> they did very differently. So you had Artesian who, who at one point we were talking about over two years of backlog. And I have to tell you, just as, a, as the new guy, I just, that was one of those things that I was fortunate enough to be able to put my finger on and say, okay, that's not real. I don't know what that is, but I know this. I know that our dealers 23 months from now don't know what they want to buy. So that's not real. And, but again, I don't know that there was a right or a wrong in this. We've gone through the work to clean that up and to get our house in order. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we've learned even through that process, okay, how do we better solicit input from our dealers, right? How do we better understand, how do we ask the questions that cause our dealers to contemplate what demand might look like in the next month, the next quarter, in the next year. And as we right. exercise that that psyop muscle that nobody had to exercise, or at least didn't need to start with sales to understand it, it forced us to learn from that process. And we made the mistake when we first went out and started asking people of giving them some guidance. And that was a horrible mistake because because people listened to us. And we <laughs> went, right? I broke my crystal ball a long time ago, but when we said maybe it's pre-COVID plus a certain percent, 
people said, yeah, that sounds good. And then we had to go back and say, what if it's not that? What do you think it is that? And so we've had to work through that. But understanding what it means to, to manage vendor relationships that were strained in some very diff- different ways seven or eight months ago than they are yeah. today. Yeah. Right? We've got vendors right now that are having tough times because they right. built to a capacity that didn't sustain itself. And we want to be good partners, and yet we still have to we still have to manage our own house. And so, trying to understand how to weigh those and how to make sure that we maintain our long term partnerships with vendors, and at the same time serve all the stakeholders that are. Yeah, that's it's so interesting thinking through all of those things and thinking through predicting how many hot tubs are going to be sold coming up because it was. It was something that we kept asking as a magazine was, how are you measuring this? And how are you deciding what this means? And and it felt like something that people couldn't answer, I think, for a really long time, right? Like our growth was so explosive that nobody really had the systems to measure and keep up with and figure out. It was really just that, I mean, that drinking from a fire hose throw money at the problem to fix it mentality, because that's what we people had to do to survive. But it, it just flabbergasted me too, because it's, you guys, we know it's going to slow down at some point. What are we doing to prepare for that? And obviously some people did and were ready for that shift to happen. And then some people, it was like, it caught them completely by surprise. And it's just, you right. knew this was coming. <laughs> we couldn't sell hot tubs like this forever. That just doesn't make sense. There's only so many households and you can't put, generally you can't put more than one in a backyard, but it, but for some rare instances, it's interesting you how you point that out, Megan. I think that if you look at the precipitous fall, I think that's what surprised people. I, I okay. think everybody thought that this, the ramp up happened awfully quick, but everybody thought the right. fall was going to happen much more slowly and through a whole course of events that that it's time for another show for us to go through. I think there's <laughs> lots of causes to that. But in the end, and this is the piece that, that we're super focused on, is that there were manufacturers who were in a little bit of trouble before COVID and COVID rescued them. Right. And not just be money and all of that, but just the demand curve that it rescued them. And as we go back to this 17th normal or whatever we're up to now, the safety net's gone again. Yeah. And we all need to tend to our business as well. And those who learned things and got stronger through this challenging time are going to come out on top. And those who didn't, those who weren't priming their pump with innovation so that they didn't have anything to show, those who didn't continue to do the things that you have to do to tend to your business, even when times are well, that they're going to really struggle and it's and it might be scary for them in the future. Somebody, when I was young, I had a, a mentor once who told me that you prepare for rain when it's when the sun's out and you prepare for the sun when it's raining. And that's really what these businesses, all three of them did. I'd love to say that it was just under, under Monomoy's leadership or, or my leadership, but it wasn't. These were well-run businesses before they were acquired. And there's some tools and some things that we've put in place since that I'm excited because I think it makes them stronger. But but I think there's going to be opportunity, both at the manufacturer level as well as at the dealer level. There's unfortunately, you know, virtually unlimited demand creates some bad habits too. And we're internally searching right now and really trying to identify any or all of them that we have to break ourselves up because, because we have them too. It's not, we're not immune to it, but we're going to try and find them and be tenacious about rooting them out to be stronger. Yeah, that's the thing about this. I think if you only looked at this, all of this as a challenge and didn't see the opportunity in it, then you probably are in trouble, right? Because because at some point you had to say, 
okay, what is this giving us the opportunity to change about our business moving forward? And that's been the fun thing to watch people do is the the programs and the improvements and the things that they've been doing behind the scenes while they've had the cash, honestly, to be able to complete that stuff. It's been really, it's been really cool. And it's, and yeah, I think those are the businesses that when everything shakes out, we look back in 10 years, right? They're the ones that are going to be like, oh yeah, they really got it. They did it. (laughs) Yeah, I as we look at at just opportunities that are out there, and when I was in the turnaround space, we used to talk about how chapter 11's fixed balance sheets, but not businesses. And the, the reality is you can fix your balance sheet in chapter 11, but if you don't fix your business, you're not really serving anybody. And I think that there's a lot of similarity, right? As, as I look at how I was prepared for this role, how life's events came to be and the way that I was equipped and trained. That's really what COVID was for a lot of businesses is it fixed their balance sheet. They maybe had too much debt. They maybe were cash poor. Ultimately, they were able to sell through enough that they were able to build up some liquidity on their balance sheet, maybe shuck some debt. But in the end, if we didn't fix the practice, we're going to end up in the same spot we were before. And you're right. We're going to look back on this five, 10 years from now, maybe not even that long and say that there's winners and losers. And there's certainly is a part of COVID where winners and losers in industries, but I think we're going to see them inside of industries, even the winning industries. In the long run, it doesn't, it, COVID doesn't cover all sins. It just was a band-aid that helped some people bridge some difficulty. And yet we're going to find some others who maybe were in trouble and took this time to get their house in order yeah. and come out even stronger. And then we're going to have to figure out how to compete with them. Yeah. And, and I think that's also, I mean, it's, I hesitate to say fun because these things are challenging and painful and difficult. So maybe not necessarily fun, but it's fun to see the kind of innovation and efficiencies that come out of times like this. So you look back and you're, and you just can't imagine doing it any other way than the way you do it now, but you were. <laughs> right. And for a while, you thought that was the best way. So it's just going to be so fascinating to see what those things are for our industry both at the manufacturer level and at the dealer level. Yeah, absolutely. We joked when I first got here that if you could fog a mirror, you could sell a hot tub. And now it's changed. And if there's one thing that I've learned in in the first seven months here is it's probably going to change again, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to get better. It's going to get worse. It's just not going to stay the same. And having a core group of people who can lead our organization and gather the ideas from the shop floor in terms of efficiencies and improvements and the product innovators and the marketers and the sales team and and really the entire spectrum of everyone, including folks who can count our money and make sure that we know what our profitability looks Mm -hmm. like is that's where it's going to, that's where our competitive advantage will be. It'll be on the people side and we've got a great group of people. It's the reason why I'm so excited for our future. Yeah. So now that you've had some time to dig into these three businesses separately, all and now all together, I'm curious what you see some of their their strengths um, and maybe even weaknesses looking at each one. Because I think we as an industry have our ideas, but what sure. does it look like from the outside in now? <laughs> I don't know that I have it all figured out yet, but here's my take. I look at I look at Marquee. And I say it's an incredible brand, right? The crown series that they developed and really was for the most part, developed pre-COVID and then slowly walked out because of unforeseen circumstances. Yeah, no, I was well, at the dealer meeting when they announced that and then we got home and everything changed immediately. Just like that, right? <laughs> it was immediate, yeah. 
So you know, innovation has clearly always been in Marquis' DNA. They're, they've always been cutting edge. They've always done things just a little bit different. And I think that brand and that passion that they have towards innovation is a huge advantage, not just for Marquis, but as we bring that throughout the platform. Describe Marquis as a new product development arm and also a bit of a marketing arm, but we really haven't figured out how to tie those together well yet. And that's one of the things that I'm excited we're going to see in 2023 is we will be far better aligned in how we bring products to market. And we've got some exciting things coming that we'll be excited to talk about here in the future. But um, so, I, I, you know, strengths and weaknesses, that's what I'd see in Marquis is a, a, in their DNA has always been product development and some marketing prowess, but being able to align those is something we're really excited about. I think in terms of, if you look at Artesian, Artesian is has always been that value line that there's a place for everybody. And because of that, you see the scope and the size of Artesian and what they've been able to do by way of market penetration. There's not nearly the same white space in the market. I think there's a number of more dealers than Artesian dealers than there are marquee dealers. And that may always be the case just because of who their audience is. Artesian's also been very nimble in how they come to market with a new product. I still remember I, I'd been with the platform for a couple of months and I was approached and told, we really need to do this and this, and we can be competitive at a couple of price points. And I said, well, how long will this take? And they said, probably four or five weeks. And was stunned, but they yeah. are, they're very nimble. And it wasn't innovation that revolutionized or disrupted the hot tub industry, but they were able to just literally turn on a dime. And that's something that, that we hope to also carry across the platform. And I think as we seek to take some of the innovation engine that's present at Marquee today and bring it throughout the platform, we're going to be very careful to keep separate product lines, but similar best practices so that there'll still be distinctives between the lines. But I think what we're going to see is a nimbler and yet more robust innovation engine that, that that comes out of the platform. In terms of Nordic, I just look at Nordic as the value line that could. It's kind of like the little engine that could. It just, I think I can, I think I can. And they just keep selling more hot tubs. It's amazing when you look at what that group of folks in Grand Rapids, Michigan has been able to accomplish now. And we've been acquisition and looking at the 20th of December. So we're about 45 days into it. Yeah. The penetration that they have inside of excellent dealers, product that they developed, the reputation that they've worked so steadfast and so hard to build, all of those things come to pair. Somebody asked me, they said, so can we just produce, can you just produce artesian or more marquee branded HDPE tubs in Grand Rapids and just uh -huh. call it part of the line? And of course not. So there's so much brand equity in the Nordic name and the quality that it stands for. How arrogant do we think we'd be that we could just walk into a dealer and say, we're going to, we're going to start producing HDPE tubs ourselves and we've got lost <laughs> out. They'd throw us out and say, you've lost your money. Some people have tried that approach. They have. We're, we're I, Maybe I'm not smart enough to fold that off because we're not going to try that. But we're we're going to leverage the Nordic name because it's yep. because there is brand equity there and they've yeah. earned it. It and is so. cool. I mean, like you know, they really they're they're unique. I mean, really, the only ones in the industry who make a hot set that way that can't be denied. And right. it's and again, I've been in their plant. It's fascinating to watch that process. So it is. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Watching a hot tub get formed is neat, but then watching it be formed basically backwards is... Yeah, yeah. when I found out what, what capital X, what CapEx was for mold designs and things like that there, I was, oh. that, now I understand it, right? It's a whole other world. And one where if we don't like how something looks when we're done, we just 
tweak this or, or change this. But not with that process. You yeah. make sure you get it right the first time. And craftsmen, when it comes to what they do there, and there's lessons that we can learn at Artesian and Marquee from the team there. Yeah, I think you I think you passed the test. You checked all the boxes I would have checked. Very good. Hey. So, so welcome to the hot tub industry now. We'll let you stay. <laughs> and I didn't ask what a bimini was, so we're all good. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I'm sure there if we tried really hard, I'm sure there's some terms that both of us would not know. So that's well for me for sure. You're you've been in the industry a lot longer, Megan, but certainly I you could play stump the guy. Yeah. Oh, that should be at the end of the podcast. We always do our spa retailer five, but maybe that's what we should start calling it now is stump the stump the guy. <laughs> Since I would probably be the one end up being stumped and that would be oh. embarrassing. So we're not going to do that. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. As you guys look to the future, obviously it's Nordic acquisition, like you said, only barely 45 days old. So I'm sure a lot of work to do as far as bringing them under the umbrella and all of that. But we already talked about needing a name, but what are some of the other things that, that you're hoping to get done in the next year or so that you can tell the industry about now? Yeah, we're keen on making sure that we understand where our roots are. So we'll start with the brand promise and the value propositions that we talked about and making sure that across the platform, we can live those out. And at that point, then we'll be ready to, to, ready to talk about them. We've got a full slate of innovation. We just had a face-to-face -face board meeting in, in, in Michigan last week where the board members had an opportunity to see and tour the plant, a few that hadn't seen it before. And while we were there, we talked about what innovation is going to look like, what some of our goals are. We talked about what the next level of marketing will look like for our platform and, and some of the opportunities that we have there, certainly related to a brand launch and the platform brand, but also just what will it look like for us to tighten what it is that already exists across the platform inside of each company to sharpen our marketing skills to serve, to better serve our sales endeavors and process process. We're going to become fanatical about processes. That's everywhere from how we engage with dealers and how we serve dealers on the customer service side to how we build our hot tubs, right? Just that bringing that we have the luxury with the platform that we have now to make some pretty significant investments in process. And so I can't recall, it's a crazy number of engineers that we're hiring the manufacturing engineers and value engineers and folks, engineering techs who who can all help us to develop the best processes to continue to drive what we call second pass yield internally or quality escapes. We're going to drive performance there because what we recognize is unlike the automobile business, nobody in this business makes money on service. And so <laughs> to the extent that we can drive defects towards zero, is a blessing for, for both our consumers as well as our dealers. And we want to we want to be there. And process will help us get there. Process will help us to make certain that as we come up with new innovation, that there's elegance and simplicity, right? The, 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 I don't need to make hot tubs more difficult to service. I need to make them less difficult to service. I don't need to make them more feature rich with greater opportunities for failure. I need to make, mm -hmm. I need to reduce failure opportunities. And so that's where this, these engineers that we have added and some that we're continuing to add, that's where they earn their money, right? It, is it helps us to invest in ways across the platform that, uh, that will delight our customers and, and make our dealers more money. Yeah. No, that's great. That's really exciting to hear that you're hiring that many engineers. There's not always an engineer in the building in a hot tub manufacturing facilities. So that's really exciting that to see that brought in. I mean, like you said, uh, Marquis definitely kind of had that had that wing, but but yeah, what a great thing to add to all of them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it all comes back to that same message of serving people with excellence, right? Is if you look at the greatest challenges that that we did some market research and I'll just share it, but we surveyed dealers across North America and we surveyed consumers of hot tubs across America, not just our own brand. And everybody agrees the number one driving driving thing is ironically not hydrotherapy, it's quality. The dealers probably arguably for a different reason than the, the consumer. But what does that tell us? Well, it tells us we need to respond to that because as much as we might think that's the next best gadget that's going to sell, sell, sell more hot tubs or take market share, we need to listen to what our customers are asking for. And if we don't right. have that quality piece licked where we're a leader across the platform now, as well as in the future, then we're at risk of whatever the next critical failure is. And extremely focused on that, believe that we can differentiate ourselves today with the quality that we have across our platform, but into the future, we're going to differentiate ourselves on quality and ease of business with dealers. And we've got a few things that are in the R&D lab that we're awfully excited to be able to talk about later. That's great. Yeah, I'm excited over the ne- I'm excited for the next couple of years because I feel like people have been working on some stuff behind the scenes that they haven't been able to put out because of all of the supply chain issues. And so, yeah, I'm we've in, in the magazine, at least we've had a couple of years where it's been really we haven't had a lot of new product to talk about which is fine. There have been plenty of other things to talk about. No worries. I've got lots of content to cover, but I am excited to start to get to talk about product again and see what people have been, see what people have been working on. Yeah. And as much as I'd love to say that wish we were the only ones who had new product to talk about, the reality is that when our competitors come out with product, it makes us stronger, right? It forces us to exercise our muscles. We all become better and all of us who are able to become better. And in the end, that's good for the whole industry because it's going to sell more hot tubs and we're going to see, we're going to see penetration in markets that maybe we wouldn't have seen otherwise because we're building a better product. Yeah. And so your family is adjusting to Nevada, you said. I I took a similar trajectory because I grew up in North Dakota and then I went to college in Phoenix. And so I know what that culture weather shock is like this time of year, they're probably loving it, I would imagine. Yeah, they are. They are. Though I can tell you that we made the mistake, and shame on me, but we made the mistake before we left Minnesota of, of donating all of our winter coats because we thought, well, we're not going to need them. It's, we're moving to the desert. And it was 32 degrees yesterday morning when I got up. So yeah, they, it can get chilly in the desert. It, it, it can get a little bit chilly. I think it still got to 55 or 60 during the day, but families, families definitely getting adjusted trying to figure out what their new life looks like. And it's an adventure and we love that Yeah, as a family. We love the adventure and this is just another chapter. So are you ready for this spa retailer five? We'll change them a little bit because some of these questions, you're not a hot tub retailer, so we'll have to change them up a little bit, but I promise they're not too difficult. I am as ready as I can be. Okay. All right. So do you remember your first sale? So typically we're asking people what their first spa sale was, but for you, it could be any sale, any product, customer do you do you remember what that first what that first one was i do my first job was detailing cars for a car, used car lots oh my and, and i was 14 at the time and when i turned 16 the woman that i worked for decided she was getting out of the business and i i plowed enough money together i think i paid her like 800 dollars for all of her equipment and i decided i was going to go detail cars and i still remember the first time i walked into a used car dealer that i didn't know and pitched them that I, as a 16-year-old kid with a 69 Chevrolet and gear in the back, that I was going to be the guy that detailed their cars. And they were kind enough to give me an opportunity to do so. That was my first sale. 
That's pretty exciting, though. And I love that everybody rem- I, everybody remembers that first sale. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And my next question was going to be, what was your first real job? But you also answered it. So detailing cars. Yeah, that was my first job. I was 14 years old. I had worked for my dad before that. I think that doesn't count. But I guess to add color to that, my, my dad owned a bridge construction company. He installed the steel on the bridges. So I remember that they would weld these studs, these metal studs on top of beams. And it was my job. There was a little porcelain ring that they needed and then a stud and they would line them up in groups of three. And it was my job at five years old to take these little porcelain rings and lay them out three at a time and three at a time. And I would do it for hours because I was getting paid for it. And it was I felt like a big boy, right? So That's amazing. I, I, at five, I was doing that. I'm sure if he did that today and allowed me on a bridge, he'd probably go to jail. Maybe. Yeah. Also, I can't imagine getting my children when they were five to do anything for hours and hours at a time. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> Even different. if I paid you know, him, I don't think, I think they would have lost interest pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, times were different. Do you have a, thinking back over your career, do you have a product or an idea that just flopped, did not work out the way that you had thought it would. You thought this was going to be the one and then turned around and it was like not exactly the result you were looking for. Yeah, no. <laughs> Which one, right? Yeah, I that's the other that, thing most people can remember too. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, right, out of 20 of my ideas, I just pray that one is good enough to pay for the other 19. But but no, I what I would say is that I, I guess thinking back, when I had the consulting firm so we were a turnaround business and we demonstrated that we were an effective turnaround business. And from there, we grew a tax practice and birthed that out. And we were really great at tax. And we decided that we were going to endeavor into HR and hired a, a young kid and was sure that it was going to be amazing. And he was absolutely the right guy for the job. But I'm telling you, it was so not aligned. You, you take a consulting firm that is full of people who know how to take businesses that are in crisis and make really difficult, really rapid, really hard decisions because clients had to or they would die. Right. And then you add to it hysterical, stereotypical accounting where debits and credits line up and this is the process we use. And then finally you're gonna you're gonna take the mix of people and you're gonna take HR and slide it and it was really bad. It lasted for about nine months. I think we sold a total of three accounts and it was time to move on. But I'm sure there were more that were Far worse than that, but that's the one that comes to mind. That's really interesting. That makes sense. Yeah. You have this like cut and dried outlook on things more or less. And then, yeah, you bring in HR and there's nothing cut and dried or black and white about dealing with people. (laughs) Well, change management is much easier with businesses that are in distress than just businesses that are operating. Sometimes people have to listen to you, but uh, when they don't, persuasion is, is very different. So on the flip side, then, do you have something that you look back on and you said, wow, that's the one that we really nailed? I don't know that this is an answer to your question, but somebody told me a long time ago when you're doing this sort of thing, if you don't like the question, just answer a different one. So you, you could call me, <laughs> yeah, you could call fine. me out on, Megan, call me out on if I'm not answering your question, but <laughs> I am, I'm a huge proponent of hiring really good people and taking them and putting them in a channel where they can just run mm-hmm. and you set up guardrails and you let them just run as hard as they can. And usually with great people, they run amazingly fast and they accomplish incredible things. And probably an example of that was also at the consulting firm. There was a young woman that we hired in the tax practice. She was, we hired her as an intern. And, and she ultimately, when she graduated, we hired her full-time. We found out a couple of years later, ironically, that she uh, she shared with us when she first started after her internship, 
for the first month or so, she drank black coffee and listened to talk radio on the way to work because she thought that's what adults did. That's how young and naive this kid was. Oh, but, that's really she sweet, was, actually. She was, it was really sweet. <laughs> but she was super sharp and she came to us and after the internship and we had this rule that inside of the firm, you had to market the firm. You didn't have to sell, but you had to market the firm. And what that meant was if you had a network, basically, and if you were young enough, you really didn't have a professional network, we were going to plug you into BNI or some group sure. that that you had yeah. to that you had to market inside of. And so we plugged her into a BNI. And true story, the first time we got there, like she had tears rolling down her face. She was so scared because she's an accountant, right? She doesn't want to talk to people. But helped her, coached her along. And a couple of years later, she was not only marketing, but she was closing deals. And by four or five years, she had more accounts, not more revenue, but she had more accounts than I did in the firm. And <laughs> she was amazing. And she a little swagger, a little strut, and all that she was accomplishing. And we used to have this rule in our firm that we joke about that nobody was allowed to leave. You just can't quit. It's not allowed. And, and people didn't. But but she came to me one day and she said, well, I'm getting married. And I said, yeah. And she said, I'm moving to Wisconsin. And I said, yes. And she said, would it be okay if I worked? remotely if that what that's the plan yeah and so we blessed that that was all fine and then she came to me about a month or two later and she said there's a job opening for a role at a cpa firm in the town where i'm moving to would it be okay if i applied i'm like oh my gosh yeah of, of course it is <laughs> not really a rule yes of course you can <laughs> and of course she got the job and she when she got the job and she she exited very gracefully she called us she called me about two months later and she said, hey, would you ever sell your tax practice? And I said, I'd have to have somebody who I knew was going to take care of the clients and yada, yada, yada. And she said, what if our firm bought it and I managed the tax clients? And they did. They bought our tax practice. Wow. And I spoke to her last, probably a couple of years ago. And it was, you know, she was, uh, she just had, I think she had just had their first child she was on maternity leave and she shared with me that whatever she was, 29 or 30 years old, she was, they had told her when she came back that year that they were going to make her partner inside of this 45 person CPA firm at whatever, 30 years old. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that's a product, but I love that story. I'm such an right. impact guy that had this young kid who really didn't know how to do anything, but she had the drive, she had the motivation and my team and I were able to come around her and point her in the right direction, but she owned it. She took it. She accomplished so yeah. much. I love that. And it's one of the reasons why business just fascinates me in general is because uh, when you insert the power of people like that, it's amazing. You did not answer the question incorrectly because you basically gave the same answer that I did when I was asked these questions on our podcast a while ago. They're like, what was the best decision you ever made? And it's like, well, the people I hired, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. the best decision I ever made. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So our last one, do you have a favorite book or TV show or podcast, something that you listen to either to gain wisdom from or just to entertain yourself and unwind and go either yeah. way? Fabulous question. I don't read as, I have not read as much in the last seven months as I had in the past. What have you been busier? I've been coming up to speed on a couple of things. Okay. But, but I can Slacker. say that, yeah, but I can say this and it, it really was a defining change in my life. I started doing this probably now 15 years, 17 years ago. I read the book of Proverbs in the Bible and I read one proverb a day. And there's 31 Proverbs, happens to be 31 days in some months. And I read one of those chapters every day. And it's called the book of wisdom. And 
It, there, it is amazing how many times that I'll read something in the morning and it will be applicable to, to today's event and part of the challenges or the decisions that we're having to make. And yeah, it's the, it's the Book of Wisdom or the Book of Proverbs in, in the scriptures. You are not the first, and I bet not the last person who is going to say the Bible as on, <laughs> on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I'm seeing, a, I'm seeing a trend and a theme through the people we interview in the hot tub industry. <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably indicative of how much I need it. <laughs> I don't have the wisdom to do this on my own. So I better be reading about it. Anymore. Yeah, that's a really cool practice. And it's interesting because every time you read through something like that, you can always take something different from it. And I talk about it being alive. And it really feels that way because every time something else, something new will stick out to you that you had never had never noticed before or thought of before. And like you said, later on in your deal, like, oh, that's why I paid attention to that I, today. That's why I read that today. You're spot on, Megan. And, and yeah, I think it's in Romans where it talks about being alive. And it is. And it and it's the reality that it is applicable to us today is an important one. It's so easy to say it's a, it's a book that ranges between five or 10,000 years to 2,000 years old, and maybe it isn't applicable today. But it's, it's just not the case. It, the principles are enduring and they last forever. Yeah. Rick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. It was nice to finally get to meet you, and I'm excited for the rest of the industry to get to know you a little bit better now as well. Thanks, Megan. This has been super fun. The Spa Retailer Podcast is a production of Spa Retailer Magazine. Let us know what you think by leaving a review or emailing us at podcast at sparetailer.com. Thanks for listening.